All right, we have a selection of verses from Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read first verse 9 and then verses 14 to 18. Uh, just uh, for focus, we'll start in verse 9 and then verses 14 through 18. The author of Hebrews inspired says this, But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May God bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his word. Amen. Amen. Which event is more important Christmas or Easter? I, I guess I could phrase it, which one do you like the best? But that seems very superficial. The question comes up not infrequently. Which is more important if you think of the life of the church, uh, which uh, festival or a holy day, which has become holiday, which is the most important? Well, I, I would submit to you, as we've we probably asked and answered this in the past at some point, I would, I would submit that for Christians, Easter is the most important uh, as a religious holiday because it marks the resurrection of Christ and it marks the, the culmination or the pinnacle of God's saving work in the world. But that saving work begins at Christmas, so they're related. Um, for maybe non-religious people, they might gravitate towards Christmas, uh, not for the religious reasons, but the attendant cultural reasons of giving gifts and celebrating that way. Um, that's what uh, most uh, sociologists says, that uh, Christmas, with its long tradition of gift giving, is often more uh, important a holiday among secular folks. And I'm, I'm sure it is. There's that's just the reality. But what we learn today from our scripture will help us answer that question and help us to see the importance of Christmas or, to be specific, the incarnation, the coming of Christ. That is important to the cross and to the resurrection, which we hold so dear. You can't have Easter without Christmas. The two are very much related. We're told that Jesus became a man so that he would have flesh and blood that he could take through this world and to the cross. God could not die. So God the Son, the holy person, Christ, took on flesh 
God and man in one person and thus could die on the cross and could be raised on that Easter Sunday. Jesus did this for us. The Son of God became a man so that we might become sons of God. He took our nature that we might partake of his. He came to earth that we might go to heaven. And he came to die that we might not die but have eternal life. Those are the things we'll see in today's sermon about Christ coming to deliver us from death unto life. In fact, the very impetus for this Advent series comes from one of the verbs in this little portion of Hebrews where it says Christ came to destroy and he came to deliver. And I don't know that we often think about that dimension of the person and work of Christ. He came to deliver. He came to get us and change us in a significant way. And if you are a Christian, you have experienced that deliverance. Last week, we looked at darkness to light. Our eyes are open to behold the truths of God. And today, from death, sin, guilt, and death unto life. But we need to start with uh, the grip of death. Someone noticed, hey, pastor, it looks like if we're going from deliverance to this, your sermons just seem to have two main points. And yes, they do. We begin with the situation from which we need deliverance. And the second point is about the deliverer and what he has done. And that covers it. I can add a third point in if public demands it. The grip of death. We need to start there. Yes, it's the negative side. It's the dark side. But it's the reality. And here's one of the most profound quotes of the whole sermon. So give this your attention from Rick Phillips in his sermon on this text. He makes an observation about death that is eye-opening and really sets the table for what we need to see here. He reminds us that death is not merely an event that awaits us. But death is a power that rules over us now. The leaven of futility, he says, that permeates all our achievements and denies our soul's peace and contentment. I bet you've made that mistake, thinking death is simply an event that awaits us. It has present implications for today, for Monday and Tuesday. It rules in this world in a horrible, painful, hostile way. That's the death we're talking about today. The passage that we're looking at from Hebrews 2 in verses 14 and following talks about mankind being in bondage. That's another analogy uh, to our situation. Bondage, the word for slavery, to be held captive, to be a hostage. He himself partook of our flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and, verse 15, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the ESV. The King James might use the word bondage. Think about bondage. Think about slavery. 
not just a temporary kidnapping, but that condition that goes on and on throughout the years of life for someone who is not a believer, who's never had the new birth or the deliverance of Jesus. They are enslaved. Maybe we need a hashtag and some posters and banners and we need to go protest that. The world doesn't. Is it possible that men and women in this world, because all they've ever known is self-centeredness and separation from God and the rule of sin, the inability to fight temptation, this dark place where they're at, that's all they know. They don't cry out for deliverance, typically, until the Lord pierces the darkness. I think those that are held in bondage, they're oblivious to life and freedom. It's it's probably not a movie everyone has seen, but the movie The Matrix, this trilogy, very fascinating. I've seen seen it, I recall, and and, and it it, it talks about how one person who's stuck in this computer-generated world doesn't realize the reality that's outside. Those that are in the workplace, those that you meet at the club or the grocery store, your neighbors or even other family members who are still in darkness, who are still ruled and enslaved by spiritual death, do not have the same understanding we have. I think perhaps one reason that Christmas is so popular, even with those who still walk in darkness, Because it gives them just a hint of something, an alternative, a better place, a better side of life. They hear songs about peace and joy and long for that. But being in darkness and bondage, they can't embrace it. Only only passing, fleeting experiences of it. If you've been a Christian a long time, perhaps since your childhood, you may have forgotten what it was like to be on the other side. I remember. I wasn't converted until age 18. I remember sitting with Christians with Bibles open and why should I underline that verse? I, I don't get it. That doesn't make any sense to me. You're so, well, why are you crying? Why are you singing? just oblivious to the joys of God and understanding what life was meant to be and experiencing the grace and favor of your maker. This is described as bondage in the Bible, which makes the good news we have all the more good news. We can pronounce spiritual emancipation through the deliverer, Jesus Christ. But before we move on to that, let me identify, as our text mentions, uh, the three enemies that Christ came to deliver us from. Uh, there isn't just one guard to our captivity and bondage and, uh, to sin, but there are actually three enemies, and these verses in Hebrews make reference to them. I can tell you what they are just uh, before we read the text. Sin, death, and the devil. Let me read uh, the verses again from Hebrews and emphasize those three as they appear. And the order they appear uh, is not the order. I'll take them in. Back to verse 14, it talks about Jesus 
the Son of God becoming a baby, flesh and blood. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, there's an enemy, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's another enemy. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Death, in verses 14 and 15, sin and the devil, three enemies. We'll take sin first. Sin is really the first enemy because sin is at the root of the problem. If there were no sin uh, in the world, there would be no death. If Adam and Eve had minded the rules... They would be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, tend it, represent God in the midst of his creation, and there would have been no death. There isn't any death in the Bible story until they sin, and then things get ugly. And in Adam, all die. And in Christ, all are made alive. Sin is the first enemy. Sin is hostile, destructive power. Sin is not simply a low grade or a failing grade and nobody's going to look at your grades after you graduate. No, sin is an enemy. Sin is a voracious power that's not satisfied when you give in to its first impulse. It will come back for more and more and more. Oh, how modern people underestimate sin. And that's a shame. Sin brings about our guilt before our holy God. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, someone makes a, spe- makes a speech. And, and Shakespeare knew his Bible so well. Shakespeare and, and that period of English and the King James Bible developed. Uh, he knew the Christian worldview. But one of the characters in Macbeth where there had been a murder is, is trying to wash their hands even when there's no blood on their hands. And, and metaphorically, the character says, out, damn spot. They're trying to get rid of the, the sense of guilt and shame that has clung to them for their participation in a murder. And even though the blood is gone, the guilt remains. Because of sin. The resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, says this in the midst of that discussion. It says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin. So we know sin's really the first enemy that we have to get to. That's the sting that's in death. And it also says the power of sin is the law. Sin is defined by God. Sin is any transgression of the, lack of the law of God or any lack of conformity to the law of God. You can sin by neglecting your duties. If you don't give thanks and praise to God, that's a sin. 
Or if you lie, cheat, steal, murder, covet, and we can go on and on and on, transgressing the law of God, that's a sin. Theologians have given them two names, sins of commission, I commit a sin, and there are sins that I commit by omitting my duties. So, all have sinned. Sin is just the first enemy, and it brings about death. Death is the second enemy that we need deliverance from. We see that in verse 14, it talks about the devil has the power of death, and that death has created fear in human beings. Death is indeed an enemy. When God created the world and said it is good, there was no death in the world. Death is not good. Death is a temporal consequence of the fall into sin. And there will be a day when death is no more. And God will again look at the new heavens and new earth and say it's good. Death is the separation of the body and the soul. Uh, and, And we know that when someone dies, we put their body in the ground, but their soul goes to the presence of God. That's death, the separation, the tearing, the rending. That's not what God designed us to be taken apart and as we said earlier with uh, the quote from Rick Phillips death is not merely that event that awaits us physical death awaits us we all know that but he says death is a power that rules us now it is like leaven uh, uh, the leaven of futility that permeates all our achievements And it denies our soul peace or contentment. This cloud of death. This invasive power. Why is the world as bad as it is? It's because sin is in the world and sin is manifesting itself in death and pain. And everything leading up to physical death and pain. It's an enemy to be defeated, and Christ will defeat it. The third enemy, and very briefly uh, is mentioned here, is the devil. In verse 14, um, there is one who has the power of death, that is the devil, says the Bible. Um, I have a, a, a breaking news alert, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's this. The authors in the Bible, those who wrote in the Bible, believe that the devil was real. The devil is not some cartoon character that someone made up somewhere to scare boys and girls into doing good or to give wayward adults an excuse for doing bad. The devil's very real and not to be underestimated. I know at times as a homeowner, if I go into the backyard, my, you know, there's some animal out there, go see what's out there. Well, if it turns out it's just a little bunny hopping through the bushes, that's not very frightening. If it's a coyote, I might step back a few feet. And we don't have very many dangerous animals around. But when we're thinking of those whom God has created, indeed fallen angels, the devil is the most dangerous creature in existence. And he is not present everywhere. He is one being He has a lot of helpers, and he's in this world. And when Christ comes to destroy him and to limit his ability to work, it means not only him, but all his helpers as well. And their days are numbered. Christ has the upper hand, as we'll see. 
But the third enemy is the devil. As one commentary has put it, Satan's power is not absolute. Good to remember. It is under the control of God. We only need to remember the book of Job and what we learn there. Satan was, according to the Gospel of John, quote, a murderer from the beginning. He does have power to harm people to some extent, but it's under the sovereign rule of God. And this verse here in Hebrews means that Satan has power to work in the realm of death. That is to incite people to sin, which will lead to their death. Satan, the equivalent, I guess, is telling children to play in the street. Satan wants you to play with sin. Don't worry. He wields those temptations that he might bring about death and destruction. The Bible views him as real. We have a tough predicament. We have sinned. We're guilty. Death awaits us. Physical death, spiritual death is present already. And there's the devil. Who will deliver us from this predicament? Well, God has promised a deliverer. And to him we look. The deliverance from death through Jesus Christ. The Bible's promised a deliverer since the book of Genesis. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, before the dust had settled, God put down a promise that someone born to the woman would crush the serpent's head and would undo the curse and death. And ever since then, throughout the Old Testament, people were looking for someone special to come and be a deliverer. There were the days of the judges, then there was the days of the king. David was a deliverer, King David. And the promise was not yet, but someone who would be born to a woman, someone born to the house of David, the house and lineage of David of Bethlehem. So the Bible gives all these clues to whom this Messiah would be, the Savior. And before we get to Bethlehem, let me just say that some of the promises, especially as highlighted by Isaiah, we had a reading earlier in worship from Isaiah 42, talking about God's son as a suffering servant. The book of Isaiah gives you four servant songs, talking about the Messiah, talking about God's son, Coming, and in his coming, it would involve suffering, pain, and even death. We should all know Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. So a deliverer is promised, and his method of delivery involves suffering, pain, and death. But that's not the end of the story. There are promises that of his kingdom would never end, that there would be a resurrection. He would not leave his soul uh, to see corruption, but he would be raised. So all these promises point us to the person of Jesus, born to Mary in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And it has to be someone with flesh and blood. Notice that God did not use an angel. Earlier, as we started the sermon, I read verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, the book of Hebrews is all about the work and person of Jesus. If you want to know more theology about Jesus, you have to read Hebrews. But you have to remember it uses 
a lot of imagery in Old Testament things. Chapter 2 in Hebrews, they're all concerned about angels. If Jesus was God but became man, he's less than an angel. Why would God do that? Why didn't God use an angel to deliver? Well, he didn't. And this passage explains. Let me just read verse 9 again. Um, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The importance of Jesus being lower than the angels, but becoming the incarnate man, Jesus Christ, God and man, was so that he could taste death. God can't die, but Christ did die. He had blood to shed. He had a life to lay down to pay for the sins of others. No angel could have ever done that. When angels appear in the Bible, some of you know this, they're not just little cupids with with wings and, and little pillows. Angels are warriors. Whenever they show up, you read it. Everybody's afraid. Angels are the Rambos of heaven under service to God. But no angel could have saved us. No angel had any blood to offer the descendants of Adam. The only solution was for God to take on human flesh, and that he does. Jesus the Son becomes the Son of Man. It is not an angel, but someone with flesh and blood. And that's explicit here in our text in Hebrews. He came to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Deliver, that verb used here, to set free, to set us loose, to change our bondage into liberty from death to life. That's what Jesus came to do, but at great cost to himself. He had to deliver us in three ways. There are three victories that Christ accomplished. Um, Theologian Raymond Brown talks about these in his commentary, these three victories. And in Christ, he does all that's necessary to bring about our salvation. So that's what we celebrate in our deliverer. We need to know more than just the manger. We need to know about his life and his death and his resurrection. Uh, The first victory is his incarnation. His first victory is the incarnation, when he took on flesh, when he was born of the Virgin Mary. That's the beginning. That's when the angels really start celebrating. And when they sing over those fields in Bethlehem, they're singing, the Savior of the world has come. It's like D-Day for the devil's sin and death. It's going to be finished. They're so excited at the birth of Jesus when the deliverer takes shape. It all becomes possible. You can't have Easter without Christmas. And there is a a necessity to this passage in Hebrews. Jesus can't deliver us without taking on flesh and blood and sharing our life. Some of the great heresies of the early days of Christianity were about the person and nature of Jesus. Oh, he only appeared to be human. Well, that won't cut it. 
an apparition has no blood to shed. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So he had to be born a baby and grow and take on this body. I've mentioned to a few folks I'm reading uh, during uh, Christmas time and East, uh, Advent time, reading through Athanasius' little gem on the incarnation, translated from its Latin from so many years ago. It's wonderful, wonderful, a complete scope of Christianity. And in the early chapters, he too talks about the incarnation coming in flesh in order to die. Here's just a brief paragraph speaking of death. All this he, Jesus, saw and pitying our race, moved with compassion for our limitation, unable to endure that death should have the mastery rather than, rather than that his creatures should perish and the work of his father for us men come to naught. He took to himself a body, a human body, even as our own. He took our body, not only so, but he took it directly from a spotless, stainless virgin without the agency of human father. He surrendered his body to death in place of all and offered it to the father. This he did out of sheer love for us so that in his death, all might die. So the first victory is getting that blood and body at the incarnation. But before he could fully win the victory at the cross, we'll get to that. That's the third victory. The second victory was also essential. What is the second victory, you wonder? Christianity is deep and rich, and Jesus conquers at the cross because he lived a sinless life. His second victory is his sinlessness. God had put someone into the world to rule, named Adam. But Adam messed up. Adam sinned. Adam fell. So God, in a sense, to remake a people for himself, sent a second Adam. And in order to become the deliverer and to have sinless blood to offer for the forgiveness of sins, he had to be without sin. Jesus faced full temptations so that he could be a sinless sacrifice. It's at the very end of our passage here in Hebrews 2, verse 18. There's a reference to it, which comes up again in chapter 4. 2.18 says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Oh, it's more than just help. He delivers. Because he is sinless, he can be the spotless lamb who was slain. You see how all these threads of the Bible come together in the person of Jesus. His sinlessness was vital. Later in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, just a page away, the Bible says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the victory begins in the manger. It continues across the highways and byways of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, where Jesus did not sin. 
but kept the law perfectly. If he had sinned, he would have come under the bondage of sin and death. He couldn't have been a savior, but he gains the victory every day living without sin in the same body as you and I have. What an amazing deliverer. And then, of course, the third and great victory, not only at the incarnation and in the sinless life, but at the cross. His victory at the cross as he makes atonement for us. None but the God-man Jesus Christ could have done that. Other people were crucified in the ancient world, but none of them brought about the salvation of the human race. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself said such things as this in John chapter 11. He was speaking to Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus had died, wanted to reassure them, and he tells them about himself, one of the great I am statements. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's what Jesus said. Because he gains the victory at the cross over sin and death. Yes, for humanity there is a physical death, but there's no sting in it. Death, where is the sting? Grave, where is that victory? There is no sting. There is no fear of death that we should have as believers. Yes, we, we long to stay with our loved ones. Yes, we have hopes and dreams, but we submit to the will of God when our final day arrives. And we need not fear death. Because Christ has conquered. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Eternal life awaits us forever and ever in a place without death, without tears, in the presence of God. The Apostle Paul would describe this victory as I've alluded to it in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the resurrection chapter. He's very much caught up in the victory. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We heard that verse earlier. And then he adds this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are given the victory. The cross, the final victory of our deliverer. Our predicament, bondage to death, that daily power that clouds life. The deliverer came and did all things necessary for our freedom. So in closing, just two words in closing. Jesus is the only deliverer that can save. And he's all you need spiritually he didn't come to say okay i've set the pattern you've got to live like this oh my what liberal theologians have done with the gospel turning it into some kind of motivational speech that jesus did this if you can measure up you might get into heaven too that's not good news that's a syllabus that can never be passed jesus is the one who saves all you need is to look to him by faith. He's done it all. That's the good news here. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. All you have to do is believe in me. Believe. Not even do good works. You just believe. And yes, faith that is genuine will have fruit and works that follow it. If we have Christ, we have all we need. I like the Christmas carol hymn by Phillips Brooks, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I I love it that some of these quality hymns and carols have truth in them so clearly. In verse 3, you'll know these words. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. He has gained the victory. He stands ready to receive you and to put his robe of righteousness around you and give you an inheritance in heaven. The victory's been won. The deliverance awaits. You're receiving it. Open the gift of Christ. And the second closing word is this. If you've received Christ, if you've been a part of his delivering work, you have life and you need not fear the grave. Here's another line from a Christmas carol. And oh, I love this one. I think it's number 152 in our hymnal. We sing it the Sunday after Christmas. I can hardly wait to sing it. We'll wait. We'll wait though. Uh, Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. Calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Yes, Christ was born to save. Now ye need not fear the grave. I remember the very first time I sang that as a Christian with understanding. I'd moved from darkness into light and I knew it was true. I need not fear the grave. Death has no sting for me. The devil can tempt and try but he will not deter me for I am Christ and he holds me fast. To have life and no more fear of death. That's what Christ offers those whom he delivers. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these aspects of the good news of Christ's saving work. Father, we thank you for expanding and enlarging our understanding of who he is and all the victories he gained in order to bring us life May we thank you and praise you all the more. May we live with confidence, no more fear of the devil, no more fear of death, as we entrust ourselves to Christ. Oh, receive the glory and praise from your people this day and always, until Christ takes us home or until he comes again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.